Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation and our Lewis Lehrman Auditorium. We, of course, welcome those who join us on our Heritage.org website on all of these occasions. For our in-house guests, we would ask that last courtesy check that our mobile devices have been silenced or turned off. And, of course, those watching online are welcome to send questions or comments at any time simply emailing speaker at heritage.org. Welcoming our special guests and leading our program today is Darren Bax, who serves as our research fellow in agricultural policy, part of the Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies. Before joining us here at Heritage, he was a policy counsel for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Prior to that, he served as director of legal and regulatory studies for seven years at the John Locke Foundation of North Carolina. He also serves on the Federalist Society's Environmental Law and Property Rights Executive Committee and was a member of the Energy, Environment, and Agriculture Task Force at ALEC. Please join me in welcoming Darren Bax. Darren? Thank you, John, and uh, I want to thank everyone for showing up today and all those that are watching on Heritage.org and online on C-SPAN. So every five years or so, Congress passes a farm bill at least in theory, and it's that special time again. So on May 18th, the House voted down its farm bill. Now, that bill still might get taken up, but when it comes to farm subsidies, that would be unfortunate if it does. So last week, the Senate introduced its farm bill, and the Senate Agriculture Committee is expected to mark up the bill on Wednesday. There is wide bipartisan support that farm subsidies need to be reformed. Now, there may be disagreement on the extent of those reforms, but there's little disagreement on many of the common sense reforms that are out there. Today, we're going to have a chance to hear from a, about common sense farm subsidy reforms from a true leader in the Senate, and then that will be followed by a panel shortly thereafter. So I had the honor of introducing Senator Chuck Grassley, Iowans have placed their trust in Chuck Grassley to serve as one of Iowa's U.S. Senators since 1981. By every measure, Senator Grassley works tirelessly to earn that trust. With uncommon tenacity, Senator Grassley brings grit and integrity to the nation's capital, where he has developed a reputation for independence and relentless oversight to make the government work for the people it serves, not the other way around. As chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Senator Grassley understands the critical role Congress serves in our system of checks and balances. No matter which political party controls Congress or the White House, Senator Grassley conducts a robust oversight of the federal bureaucracy and expects answers from the executive branch. 
He says transparency is an effective and crucial tool, to, crucial tool for holding government accountable. A, li- a lifelong family farmer, Senator Grassley brings a reality check to the policymaking tables when it comes to American agriculture. From the farm bill to trade, taxes, energy, health care, bankruptcy, and the federal regulatory regime, Senator Grassley is a fierce advocate for farmers and families who live and work in rural America. Please join me in welcoming Senator Grassley. Hello, everybody. Uh, you gave me a kind introduction, and the only thing that I would uh, add to it is, uh, uh, since you said I'm a lifelong family farmer, if Robin Grassley heard you say that, he'd say, why don't you tell them I do most of the work? And then we have a grandson in the farming operation now, and quite frankly, I get the opinion that uh, when you have a grandson in the family operation, uh, that they don't uh, really want grandpas around very often. So uh, I uh, sleep on the family farm on Friday and and Saturday nights, uh, but uh, the usual work of working a couple months in the spring and a couple months in the fall is kind of not as often as I'd like to have it happen, to be honest with you. So you gave me a kind introduction, but I also thank the entire organization uh, for inviting me here to speak, uh, because I do appreciate the opportunity to defend American agriculture and talk about the family farmer every opportunity I get. Uh, the Senate Agriculture Committee, as you've been told, is planning to hold a markup on the farm bill this week. I expect that there will be a number of amendments. Uh, n- no other piece of legislation in Congress passes, uh, uh, that, that Congress passes drives land use decisions in our country like a farm bill does. In 2012, the amount of land utilized by farms, according to the Ag Census, was 915 million acres. That includes cropland, pasture, woodland. So if you let that number sink in, 950 million acres across all 50 states directly impacted by the farm bill. And all 325 million Americans are impacted because this bill sets our food policy. The Farm Bill holds a large array of programs for rural America, including conservation funding and numerous rural development programs. I know some in this room want to reduce or eliminate much of that spending. We all have to appreciate that with the 21 trillion dollar debt uh, that ought to be a concern of all of us. I believe in a safety net for all farmers. Farm programs should provide temporary assistance when there is a sudden change in markets or natural disaster that hits a farmer's crop. Uh, You understand, I hope, that there are many things besides natural disasters beyond the control of the family farmer thus affecting the farmer's future. But regardless of that fact, Congress is going to pass another farm bill, so we might as well try to make it better. One issue that I have worked on for a great number of years is real and very enforceable. That's a payment limit 
on farm subsidies. I do not, however, believe in unlimited subsidies like are in the House Farm Bill. The House Farm Bill also made successful billionaires like Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, and President Trump eligible for farm programs because the House bill eliminates the income cap for farm subsidy eligibility. I'm not saying those individuals are going to apply for it, but just so you know how far the farm bill in the House goes. I would point out President Trump in his budget actually lowered the income cap from the current $900,000 to $500,000. So it seems that President Trump doesn't believe wealthy non-farmers need farm subsidies. I have fought for years to keep the farm safety net focused exclusively on real farmers. In fact, during the last farm bill, my payment limitation legislation was passed by both bodies of Congress as part of the farm bill. Under the way things are supposed to work, and let me emphasize supposed to work, the conference committee should have left my language in place. Instead, the conference committee violated those congressional rules and changed it, creating a new loophole to maintain the original loophole that I was trying to close. Now, you can't make that stuff up, can you? Most Americans agree, if you really farm, you really should be eligible for farm programs. Unfortunately, the farm bill is another example of good intentions gone wrong. 10% of the farmers get over 70% of the payments from the farm bill. One reason for this is that the current farm policy offers farmers unlimited subsidies if they hire the right lawyer. One of the most egregious loopholes that we need to fix deals with what it means to be, quote-unquote, actively engaged in a farming operation. Under current law, a designation called active personal management only, those four words are in quotes, allows people who do not work on farms to get farm subsidies of $125,000 or $250,000 for a married couple. And if the person grows peanuts, now understand it, if you grow one crop, you can double those numbers, again, under current uh, regulations. The loophole has eight vague ways to satisfy the service contribution for eligibility. They include, quote-unquote, supervision of activities, or another, quote-unquote, other management functions reasonably necessary for farming. Obviously, the Department of Agriculture has no way of enforcing those rules, and many people would agree they're written with that purpose in mind. Most of us agree work requirements for able-bodied adults is smart policy for food assistance. Why can't we require farmers who get huge sums of money from the government to actually work on the farm? The Government Accountability Office released a new report just a few weeks ago outlining how much money flows through that, this loophole. 
2015, the latest year that we have available, $250 million or more of that, uh, $250 million is the amount that went to that group of people because of that loophole. The largest farms abuse this loophole to the detriment of young and beginning farmers who have to compete against them for land with little to no assets. I intend to close that loophole with this amendment. And if you think young or beginning farmers shouldn't be a consideration for us, just stop to think that the average age of farmers in the United States, at least in my state, is about 58 years of age. I would also point out that we're talking about only a small fraction of the farming entities that make use of this abusive loophole. The Government Accountability Office lists of the top 50 largest subsidy recipient entities for 2015. Collectively, the top 50 used 193 extra managers to collect additional farm subsidies. We're probably talking about impacting uh, under a thousand people total with my amendment compared to about 98,000 entities that are eligible for farm programs. I'm working with my fellow senators to fix this egregious loophole once and for all, but I must say, as you can tell from what happened in conference committee five years ago, it turns out to be a real fight. The 1% of the farmers this will impact will fight tooth and nail to keep their quarter billion dollar gravy train for the, from, for, uh, that they get from the taxpayers. Now other areas of the farm safety net deserve debate as well. There is great disparity between the amounts of assistance individual crops get from the government. On a per acre basis, peanuts, rice, and cotton get far and away the largest payments from the government through both crop insurance and farm programs. Peanuts have been receiving over $340 an acre. That accounts for nearly half of the production value of the crop under the 2014 Farm Bill. Rice gets $238 per acre, and cotton gets $104 per acre. When you add the dollars per acre compared to corn and soybeans, and you add corn and soybeans together, it still does not equal what wheat, or no, it doesn't equal what rice, cotton, and peanuts are getting. The reason for these payment disparities is where the payment triggers are set compared to market prices of very various crops. For instance, cotton has its market marketing loan trigger at 99% of the world price of cotton, according to the Congressional Research Service. Now, what I wonder is, how do you justify the world price of cotton compared to corn, soybeans, wheat, uh, getting uh, uh, a national average as a basis for triggering in the programs? So that means that if the world price of cotton drops by one percentage point, U.S. cotton farmers get a marketing loan payment, which is unlimited because of a goofy thing called commodity certificates. 
No one, at least I don't know anyone, can explain how commodity certificates work, but everyone knows they exist so that cotton can get around payment limits for marketing loans. When you realize that's how the program works, it's not surprising that we lost a, a WTO case to Brazil over this cotton issue. Hopefully, the seed cotton program recently uh, uh, advanced through a recent uh, omnibus appropriation bill, that's the hurricane disaster bill earlier this year, will not result in having to pay Brazil another $800 million because of our generous subsidies. That $800 million is a result of the WTO case. For the uh, PLC program, there are several crops which have a payment trigger set well over the 10-year price average. You can probably guess what those crops are. As a government, we need to get smarter about how we spend money, allowing several hundred million dollars a year to line the pockets of non-farmers is ridiculous considering we do not even have broadband available all across rural America. As a farmer, a citizen, and a legislator, I believe it is wrong to expect or allow the government to give unlimited support to my farm or any farm. I'm looking forward to markup on Wednesday, legislating and fixing loopholes in what our constituents, and that's what our constituents elected us to do. I know that Chairman Roberts and Ranking Member Stabenow have worked hard to get us to this point. However, there are some improvements needed to get a farm bill that we can justify to the American taxpayers. I plan on uh, helping do this by making a few improvements in the bill and then get it through the entire Senate. You said you wanted me to stay for a couple questions. Okay. Couple of questions from the audience. Okay. Do we have a microphone? And just state your name and where you're from, also. Thank you. Ross Marshan, Taxpayers Protection Alliance. You did a good job talking about some of the crazier aspects of modern farm policy. I was wondering about the U.S. Sugar Program. The current U.S. sugar program is costing taxpayers and customers billions of dollars a year. And I just wanted to know um, if there's anything we could do to stem that bleeding and reform an outdated program. Yeah, for me, it would be following the leadership of Senator Shaheen, who I presume is uh, going to offer the same amendment again. I don't know if it will be offered in committee, but either place, uh, I will vote for it. Question up front right here. Uh, I know uh, when Jesse Helms was the senator from uh, North Carolina, I've I've heard of, you know um, he, he and his supporters were railing against the socialist sewer system while at the same time supporting tobacco subsidies in his state. So what is um, this House bill that it seems to have more lard than an all-you-can-eat protein buffet? Uh, uh, it was mostly Republican, wasn't it, that passed that 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 vote that farm bill with you know that, that crony capitalist subsidies and that. Uh, 
So are, are Republicans involved in, in, in larding up these farm bills, uh, or is it mostly a Republican thing or Democrat thing or equal? Or And is uh, does uh, the Heritage Foundation have a lot of these Republicans' ears in trying to get these co- uh, costs cut in support of free enterprise uh, farming system in this country? Thank you. I suppose that uh, you would say that in the uh, case of the House of Representatives, Republicans are trying to pass entirely a partisan bill. That's part of the reason it didn't get through. It'll probably get through before uh, when they worked some things out with some other Republican members. Uh, but it's strictly a partisan bill. So when it comes to the ho- Senate uh, and the bill we get out of committee, it'll be very bipartisan. Take one more question. Another question right over here. Ellen Ferguson, CQ roll call. Uh, you plan to offer your uh, what? One or two amendments in the markup, or are you waiting until you get to the floor? And do I, you expect others to offer? I will. Amendments? I will do a Wednesday in committee. Yeah. Are you expecting others to offer um, amendments? Well, will there be other amendments generally? Right. Oh. Well, I think I have seven written. I don't know how many of those we'll uh, get to bring up, uh, but there will be several amendments. It's uh, If your question is, is my amendment the only amendment that we expect to be offered, the answer is no. We would expect a, a very vigorous debate on a lot of amendments. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, and join me in thanking Senator Grassley. Now we're going to have a panel, and uh, Scott and Josh, you can come up. There's a lot happening, obviously, this week and and probably the next few months when it comes to the Farm Bill, and we're going to have couple of experts that really are on the, the front lines of this farm bill process. Um, closest to me is Scott Faber, who is the Vice President for Government Affairs for the Environmental Working Group and Environmental Working Group, or EWG. Uh, you may know um, because of their excellent um, farm subsidy database, which is critical for so many organizations. Scott's also an adjunct professor of law at Georgetown. Uh, he previously served as Vice President of Government Affairs for the Grocery Manufacturers Association. And then Josh, over there at the end, is a fifth-generation Missouri native, and he's Senior Policy Analyst at Taxpayers for Common Sense, a national nonpartisan federal budget watchdog. At TCS, he's managed the agricultural policy reform efforts since 2012. When not directly working on federal agriculture policy, Josh manages research and outreach on TCS efforts to reform the Army Corps of Engineers and dabbles in government, general government transparency. So let's start with Scott. We'll have some, we'll provide brief remarks and we'll have a little discussion then we'll get questions from you. Okay. Hello everybody. My name again is Scott Faber. Um, I'm the Vice President for Government Affairs for the Environmental Working Group. And as um, you heard from Senator Grassley, Americans overwhelmingly support providing farmers with the tools necessary to manage the ups and downs of agriculture. But as Senator Grassley put it uh, much better than I will, 
Uh, farm subsidies should only flow to farmers uh, and only to those farmers who live and work on farms. Uh, and it's also important that work should meet a common sense definition of the word work. As the GAO just found a few weeks ago, nearly a quarter of subsidy recipients who are required to be actively engaged in farming as a condition of receiving subsidies satisfy this obligation, obligation through personal management, such as joining conference calls. And as the GAO found, as these farms grow more complex with more partners, it becomes less and less likely that subsidy recipients are actually working on the farm. So this week, the Senate Agriculture Committee has a chance, a chance to fix this problem by requiring farm subsidy recipients to not only have a financial stake in the farm, but to also require that they meet a common sense definition of work. Although the Senate bill modestly tightens an existing means test for some subsidies, the bill does nothing to guarantee that farm subsidies only flow to real farmers who actually live and work on the farm. Nor does the Senate bill cap or create a means test for unlimited crop insurance subsidies or rein in subsidies to insurance agents and insurance companies. As a result, some of the nation's most successful farm businesses would continue to receive more than a million dollars a year in farm subsidies. The House bill is even worse. The House bill goes in the wrong direction by once again allowing millionaires and even billionaires to receive subsidies. The bill would even allow a farmer's cousins, nieces, and nephews to be eligible for subsidies, again, regardless of whether they live or work on the farm, which is why some advocates have dubbed the House bill the 23andMe farm bill. Recent analysis by EWG shows just how broken our farm safety net is. Using, using USDA data, we found nearly 18,000 people, 18,000 people who live in one of the nation's 50 largest cities, but nevertheless received farm subsidies in 2015 and 2016. But that's not all. Again, using USDA data, we found nearly 20, 28,000 farmers who received a subsidy or disaster payment every single year for the last 32 years. So let me say that again. We found 28,000 farmers who, who received either a subsidy payment or a disaster payment every single year since 1985. So either there are some very, very unlucky farmers out there, or the more likely explanation is that our farm safety net has been reverse engineered to pay off every year. And if that's the case, our farm safety net is not a safety net at all. The Senate Agriculture Committee should support Senator Grassley's amendment, and the full Senate should be allowed to debate other amendments to reform our broken farm subsidy system. In particular, the Senate must be able to debate an amendments that cap and means test crop insurance subsidies. At a time of great uncertainty for agriculture, Congress should not be giving unlimited subsidies to city slickers or billionaires. Congress should take steps to ensure that our tax dollars help real farmers when they actually need help and who live and work on the farm. Thank you. And thank you. Um, again, I'm Joshua Sewell with Taxpayers for Common Sense. Now, taxpayers deserve a farm bill that works for taxpayers. After all, it is us, 
taxpayers footing the bill. And now lawmakers have the opportunity and, yes, even the ability to produce a bill that works not only for all corners of agriculture, but for all types of taxpayers. But to do so, they need to keep a different set of principles in mind. Instead of judging as successes programs that bust their projected costs by 76%, like ARC and PLC, and seen as failures, any other program slightly less over, or heaven forbid, even under budget, we need policy that maximizes return on investment from every federal tax dollar sent to businesses involved in agriculture. Rather than hiding beneficiaries of Washington's largesse behind a nearly impenetrable wall of governmental secrecy, as is the case with recipients of federal crop insurance subsidies, we should know exactly where every dollar is going. The agricultural safety net must be flexible enough to adjust with the times and adapt to new challenges instead of simply being vestiges of not only Depression-era understandings of the role and potential for positive paternalism that comes from federal intervention into the market, but a misunderstanding of agricultural businesses as technological and financial laggards. Finally, we need a farm bill with programs in which all players are held accountable for making measurable and meaningful progress in achieving vital public goods. Now, for the last four years, the Heritage Foundation has led an effort to really question the unquestionable when it comes to the programs in the Farm Bill. The, dare I say, expertly edited tome, Farms and Free Enterprise, a blueprint for agricultural policy, has successfully brought to the forefront a debate about the risks agricultural businesses face and a much-needed re-examination of Washington's role in managing those risks. While there is still a diversity of opinion on how capable the innovative, hardworking businesses that make up the agriculture sector are in handling their own affairs, there is consensus that the safety net we have does not work. I honestly believe most taxpayers can come to agreement on providing a government-sponsored safety net for households or businesses involved in agriculture. A safety net that is there in the bad times and helps people dust themselves off and get back on that horse although it's not usually literally a horse. But the commodity title programs are a vestige of a bygone era, a suite of programs that sent, as Scott said, 28,000 farmers a government check every year for 32 straight years is not a safety net. A suite of programs that evolved from government-mandated prices and planting quotas to direct payments cut from the Treasury, even when farm businesses experienced record profits, is not a safety net. And now these so-called shallow loss programs which are explicitly designed to make taxpayers financially responsible for ensuring unrealistically high levels of record profits for favored growers is not a safety net. In Washington, we've moved into a risk management regime centered on crop insurance. We hear that repeatedly. So let's embrace it. But for these Title I commodity legacies of the Great Depression, it begs the question, why have them at all? The backsliding on focusing and limiting payments to those most in need that occurred in the House Farm Bill shows the real purpose of maintaining most Title I commodities in an age of crop insurance is so certain folks who want to can, in fact, farm the programs. Special interests that claim to represent farmers and ranchers but count success only as whether more cash is directed to their particular commodity year after year. Attorneys and accountants who make their living creating and exploiting loopholes to subvert the will of Congress and maximize payments. Which brings us to today. Again, there's a diversity of opinion on how proactive the federal government needs to be in relieving farming and ranching businesses of their business risks. But I've never seen any disagreement 
that what programs do exist need to be focused on the men and women actually facing the day-to-day risks of farming. Folks who choose to make their livelihood as an integral, active, and essential part of an agricultural business. At the very least, we should all be able to agree that the farm safety net should be focused on folks whose livelihood daily puts them face-to-face with risks of farming, not a series of active managers who never step foot on the farm, but instead are farming by FaceTime. That's why we at Taxpayers for Common Sense greatly appreciate Senator Grassley's leadership on targeting Title I payments to family farmers that are truly actively engaged in running their businesses. And inclusion of his amendment into the Senate Farm Bill is an absolute must if we are ever to make the agricultural safety net great again. Thanks. I have a brief discussion and then we'll get questions from the audience. So you'd asked earlier about Heritage's view on subsidies. I mean, we, we think that we need to move away from subsidies in general. And honestly, if you can't agree that only farmers should be getting subsidies and it's okay for, like, non-farmers to get them as well, then I think we've got a real serious problem. I mean, that is just such a common-sense amendment that Senator Grassley had introduced five years ago, passed the House and the Senate last time. And as he was saying, it got taken out of conference. That's something that should be – should have been in the base bill, honestly, in the – in hopefully will be included and passed in the Senate Agriculture Markup. Um, five years ago, Congress got rid of a program called the Direct Payment Program. That was the big commodity support program. And they replaced it with two new programs, one called Agriculture Risk Coverage, another one called Price Loss Coverage. There is There was a payment limit for the Direct Payment Program of $40,000. There's no payment limit for the ARC and PLC programs. And Senator Grassley's amendment from before, I don't know if it will be introduced again, but I think will be, is to have some type of payment limit on ARC and PLC. It's preferred as agricultural risk coverage and price loss coverage is ARC PLC of about $50,000 payment limit. Again, nothing groundbreaking. It's just kind of doing what was included before to these new programs that effectively replaced the old program. Instead, Congress got rid of it. I just want to touch on that. So, so let me just ask, on a lot of these reforms, it seems like the House bill kind of went the opposite direction. Scott, could you tell us exactly how that – what they did exactly? So, sure. So there's um, – under current law, uh, there is a means test that applies to uh, to certain subsidies, subsidies for covered commodities like corn, soybeans, wheat, cotton, and rice, subsidies that flow through the two programs that – Darren mentioned, PLC and ARC. And that means test was first created in 2002. It was strengthened in 2008, and it was strengthened again in 2014. And as a result of the adoption of that means test, uh, billionaires like Paul Schwab, uh, sorry, uh, Charles Schwab and Paul Allen and uh, Richard DeVos no longer received subsidies. It was the case up until 2008 that 50 of the nation's billionaires were receiving farm subsidies. Um, and so to the extent that there's been progress made uh, on farm subsidy reform, um, that's, that, that, ref- that reflects some of the progress that's been made over the last uh, three farm bills. The House bill, uh, that the, the bill that failed in the House about a month ago, would eliminate that means test for a variety of pass-through entities. And through a variety of accounting tricks, billionaires like Charles Schwab and Paul Allen and Richard DeVos 
could once again become eligible for subsidies, which is on its face ridiculous. The other, the other uh, way that the House bill goes in the wrong direction is by ex- expend- extending the lineal descendants who uh, could be eligible for subsidies through PLC and ARC. So under current law, um, the farmer, the farmer's spouse, the farmer's brother, the farmer's sister, the farmer's adult children, their spouses can all receive up to $125,000 in subsidies regardless of whether they live or work on the farm. Um, The House bill would expand that uh, circle, that family tree of subsidies, if you will, to now include cousins, nieces, and nephews. Um, It's a bit like putting Ancestry.com in charge of our farm subsidy system. Um, and so in both of those ways, by eliminating this means test for certain pass-through entities and by now extending the family tree of folks who can receive subsidies to include cousins and nieces and nephews, the House bill actually goes in the wrong direction. Uh, if, if your view is that only farmers who actually need help and who live and work on the farm should be the beneficiary of these farm safety programs. One of the biggest weaknesses of the the House process was, well, the process, Josh. Um, there are many amendments that were not considered. Uh, wonder if you could comment on that and what you think the Senate needs to do coming up. Well, certainly. Um, at Taxpayers for Common Sense, we're always supportive of a more open and robust process when it comes to forming public policy. So in the House process, if you want to call it that, um, for creating the Farm Bill, we had a very closed process. And a lot of the headlines are about the Democrats walking away from the table or being shut out of the table because of uh, some changes to nutrition programs. But there was a significant closing of the ranks within just the chairman himself um, and not really um, letting his entire committee have a, a debate process on this. And so one of the things that folks here at this table and and many other people interested in reforming farm policy to something that's more cost-effective and transparent. We came up with a number of reform champions, bipartisan reform champions, that had numerous amendments to focus crop insurance, to focus Title I programs, to put some caps on spending, various things that many of us have been discussing for years, in fact. And uh, when push came to shove, the folks on high, People in leadership, the chairman himself, uh, the ag committees, uh, had a process where they did not allow to be sent to the House floor a single amendment that was a credible, supported effort towards reforming the ag safety net that had any reasonable means of passing. Uh, there were some some amendments that were debated, but things that folks, again, in a bipartisan manner, have been working on for years, having tough conversations in front of folks at summits, on retreats, uh, did not get a chance for the will of Congress to be expressed on the House floor. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that there was fear that some of these things would actually gain traction. Because as you've learned in Washington, if you've been here a while, the longer something is out there, the more it's debated, the more people understand it. And that's scary for oftentimes for the people who wrote the bills. And and I'll just add that uh, in particular, um, Congressman uh, Meadows had filed and was prepared to offer the amendment that Senator Grassley has talked about today that would ensure that only farmers who live and work on the farm um, are eligible for subsidies. Uh, Mr. Rothfuss proposed an amendment 
that would tighten the existing means test so that people who have farmers who have made millions of dollars in the marketplace by selling their crops uh, and therefore shouldn't receive subsidies would no longer be eligible for subsidies. Um, Mr. Norman proposed an amendment that would reduce the amount of premium subsidy, crop insurance premium subsidy that we provide to farmers um, so that farmers would have to pay half or almost half of their premium subsidy, and while the taxpayers would pick up the other half, it seems like a pretty generous bargain. Uh, Mr. Sanford offered an amendment to reduce subsidies to big insurance companies. Um, the current law not only provides subsidies to farmers to buy insurance and to insurance agents to sell insurance, but also guarantees big insurance companies, uh, many of which are based in tax havens like Bermuda, guarantees those big insurance companies a 14.5% rate of return, which is an incredibly generous guarantee to any business. So um, all of those amendments were not made in order, um, as Josh said, and all of those amendments uh, may, have, may have prevailed and would have, provided, would have continued to give farmers a safety net that would be the envy of any in the world, but would have cut a better deal between agriculture and the taxpayer. And I think it's uh, another finer point on that is that Nearly every amendment that Scott just described is actually an element that was in President Trump's last budget request. So for members who represent the constituency that went the hardest and the greatest for the president, um, they didn't even get an opportunity to implement some of his – a number of his recommendations. These were in his pres in the presidential's budget request. So it begs the question why – why we did not at least have an opportunity to air these out in, in the open and see the will of Congress. And, that, and I think to Darren's other question, that's why it's so important that the Senate have a open and fair debate about subsidy reform. Um, we don't expect, other than Senator Grassley's amendment, um, subsidy reform amendments to be debated by the committee this week. Um, we expect them, but we do expect many amendments to be filed and offered for debate by the full Senate. Um, and that's why it's so important that uh, the Senate give these uh, amendments a fair hearing and have a process that uh, allows full and fair debate, unlike the, the really broken House process. I should point out that some of those reforms um, that were included in those amendments, not just in President Trump's budget, but you, a lot of those reforms were identified by GAO, um, CBO, um, President Obama, um, Pretty much anybody you can think of uh, have made those recommendations. Those reforms, honestly, don't really get me that ecstatic. Um, there's so many more important things that need to be done, but we need to at least head in the right direction. And some of these amendments at least try to do that. And it just goes to show how extreme the process has been for them not even to get voted on, um, much less get passed. So, Scott, I just want to touch on the double-dipping issue. Um, one reform that I'm hoping might get addressed in the, in the Senate process is this question of double-dipping. Can you explain it? And yeah, and so um, as, I, as you probably already figured out, there's, there's two ways that farmers, at least two ways, that farmers can be subsidized. Uh, one is through subsidies for covered commodities, which are typically corn, soybeans, wheat, cotton, rice, and peanuts, where um, the government provides either a price guarantee or a revenue guarantee at no cost to the tax, no, no cost to the farmer. 
So that's sort of this bucket over here. Um, farmers, uh, and that flows to about 20 different crops. Separately, we also provide farmers premium subsidies to buy crop insurance, and that flows to about 140 different crops. And in this case, uh, the farmer does have the, some skin in the game. On average, the farmer pays 38% of his or her premium, but the government pays the rest, 62% of his or her premium. Um, one thing that always surprises folks is that some farmers get both. They get the price or revenue guarantee from this bucket, and they get premium subsidies to buy crop insurance from this bucket. And oftentimes, the payment that comes from this bucket and the, and the indemnity payment that comes from buying your crop insurance pays you for the same loss. So in other words, because, of the, because we have a belt and suspenders subsidy system, um, in many cases, farmers are getting paid twice for the same loss. And, and as Darren alluded to, we expect amendments that would uh, at least limit the amount of exposure to the taxpayer caused by this crazy system of belts and suspenders. Um, and just add just quickly, there'll be, we also expect a number of other amendments um, similar to the ones that were filed in the House but not uh, allowed to be subject to debate, amendments that would finally cap crop insurance subsidies um, right now, there are no caps on these crop insurance premium subsidies, so some individuals get more than a million dollars a year to buy crop insurance. Um, tightening the means test, as has been proposed in uh, the president's budget. Um, reducing premium subsidies, as Congressman Norman proposed in the House. And then reducing the subsidies to uh, the insurance delivery system, uh, reducing the $1.5 billion a year we give to insurance agents to write farmers' policies, and reducing the, 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 uh, the, the guarantees that we provide to insurance companies, which, again, are, 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 large, are largely offshore in lovely places like Bermuda, where they probably don't need a 14.5% rate of return. Josh, I'm going to ask you a deeper question here. Um, most ag producers, most farmers and ranchers don't get subsidies, or they do, they get very little in the way of subsidies. And if they do, they only get subsidies to assist when some type of disaster occurs. Um, most of the ag support, like 94% of the farm program support, goes to just six commodities, uh, corn, wheat, rice, soybeans, cotton, peanuts, and did I forget one? I forgot. Um, why does Congress, like, treat these particular commodities special and kind of think that they can't compete in the marketplace and we already know that existing agriculture producers already can. So what's going on here? Well, the, numerous books can be written on this um, and have been. But uh, to sum it up, essentially you have a, a number of things moving together. Um, the biggest one is that it's, it's a simply a legacy. It's, it's learned dependence. Um, and it's a learned political dependence uh, more so than even economic. Uh, we subsidize we have the sugar program we have. We subsidize corn the way we subsidize it because we always have, at least since the Great Depression. And it, it's really tough to shake someone from that kind of a, of a paradigm is that you create a program that perhaps met a need at the time, but then economies evolve, trade evolves, uh, and the ability of farmers and ranchers to manage risks that they used to not be able to manage um, has occurred. However, you still have that guaranteed subsidy stream, that guaranteed bit of cash flow that comes from growing certain commodities, and it just becomes a cycle that feeds on itself. That's a big part of it. 
Uh, and I think politically things move slow. They certainly move slower usually than they do in the private market. And so I think even in the insurance regime, we've seen um, insurance market. It's a global market now. And we can you can insure anything you want, um, literally, uh, if you're willing to pay for it. Uh, what happens, though, is that in crop insurance, there are certain risks that just wouldn't farmers have better ways of managing their risks. We've you know, we've been growing crops since literally the dawn of civilization. We're pretty good at it and we get better at it every year. Uh, and not just us, but even our competitors. It's a very robust market. Uh, there's a lot of innovation, and but the politics can't keep up. Uh, and also the final thing is that you get to a classic case of concentrated costs and uh, concentrated benefits and dispersed costs. There are USDA claims there are 2 million farmers. When you start going through the, through the numbers, it's a much smaller number of farm businesses that are actually receiving the benefits from these programs. Depends on how you slice it. Up to 350,000, perhaps down to nearly only 100,000, depending on, and some programs it's almost in the dozens of people who are actually, who are actually benefiting from the programs. So you have a very, very motivated base to keep their particular benefits, uh, while in the grand scheme of things, sometimes it looks like these programs may not cost us all a lot directly, but the spiraling costs that come from them are, are very extreme. So it's a classic case of that as well. Real briefly, if you guys can answer this. Um, besides the cost of taxpayers, why, why should Americans even care about these farm subsidies? So one, one reason that uh, groups like uh, the Environmental Working Group care is that the subsidies do cause farmers to plant in places they wouldn't otherwise if they were simply responding to the market. And so some farmers are plowing up grasslands and wetlands and forests in order to to uh, grow crops, in part because the government's making it financially attractive for them to do so. But another reason uh, that may not uh, that may be very relevant in a time when everyone's paying close attention to uh, trade is that how we subsidize our farmers increases or decreases the risk of violating uh, WTO rules on subsidies and, and ultimately inviting a WTO challenge. Um, within the last decade, we lost a WTO challenge to Brazil because of how our sugar, uh, our cotton subsidies were designed. And as a result of that, taxpayers wound up li providing literally $800 million to Brazilians uh, in order to uh, compensate them for the impact of our cotton subsidies. So um, there are there are certainly reasons to worry that this farm bill will once again increase the vulnerability that our subsidy programs face in these uh, in the in the world of uh, WTO litigation. And I think it, it's good to remind ourselves too that our country faces 21 trillion dollars in debt. We have a debt that exceeds the size of our in, of our annual income as a country. And so uh, that is going to matter again one day because uh, it actually does matter. We're just not – we just have closed our eyes to it. And ag advocates, so-called ag advocates, often claim that we shouldn't look at farm safety net programs because there's such a, a small part of the budget. You can eliminate the entire federal government outside of, of defense and the entitlement programs, and you still would not balance the budget in, f in future years as our deficits are projected to exceed a trillion dollars a year in just a few years from now. That's before we get to the demographic wave that's occurring in the other entitlement programs of Social Security and Medicare. We have very big issues to, to, to tackle, and we have to do that by tackling every program that has brought us to where we are. And so that's why we need to focus on helping people who can't help themselves, being disaster programs that are actually there for disasters, and not using programs to simply keep the money flowing every year. 
and, and if Senator Grassley was still here, and he alluded to this during his talk, he would certainly say that one of the consequences of unlimited subsidies is that those subsidies are capitalized in the value of land, which drives up the cost of buying and renting land, which in turn creates an unfair playing field, especially for new and beginning farmers or farmers with fewer resources than the very big farmers. And so to some extent, um, this debate is, is really all about whether or not we want to have a level playing field. When 10% of the subsidies are going to the top more than 70, the top, the top, I'm sorry, the top 10% of recipients are getting more than 70% of the subsidies. Um, that's not creating a level playing field. Um, that's benefiting uh, farm households that by any measure are doing extraordinarily well um, and uh, continue to see their farm household income go up uh, and are doing much better than the than ordinary American households. So, um, again, I think if Senator Grassley were here, he would certainly point out that what's at stake here isn't just the impacts of subsidies on the environment or on our trade agreements or on the taxpayer, but that what's really at stake here is coming up with a farm safety net that isn't tilted so heavily in favor of the largest and most successful farmers and against the smaller farmers who are just struggling to continue to harvest a crop every year. Does the farm subsidy system, my last question, um, distortion planning decisions that farmers make. So in many ways, I mean, the, the sugar program we can easily point to and sh say that it, it hurts consumers by about three and a half to four billion dollars a year by artificially driving up sugar prices because what it does is it restricts the amount of sugar intentionally. Um, which really is an outdated policy. Um, so how about beyond the sugar program? How does the farm subsidies hurt consumers? Not necessarily in price, but in terms of the planting decisions. Are farmers responding to the market? Well, I mean, it's a challenge. There's a mixture of each. depends on where you are. But there's anytime you have a government program that provides benefits only on for specific crops, as the commodity title does, that you have to be one of the covered commodities or else you don't get this particular program, that by definition will will, will tilt some people towards those towards those plantings and not others. And I think it's a real challenge that that conservatives and environmental advocates and alternative agriculture advocates, uh, people who grow things called specialty crops, which is the stuff we actually eat, um, to come together and come up with an idea of how can we do this better. And again, a lot of us, those of us at this table and people in this room and some who are not here, have had those conversations. Um, but we are being shut out of the process because of politics and the desire to maintain the spending uh, where it is. Let's take some questions from the audience. Do we have any questions? Question, hand, microphone. Just stay who you are and where you're from. Hi, Grant Kidwell, Alec. Uh, in terms of kind of, you know, what's stopping these common sense reforms, is it just kind of naked self-interest in terms of politicians? Obviously, there's people in Washington, D.C. that might want to be active farmers and spend 99% of their time in D.C. as congressmen. Is that stopping it, or what in your all's mind is kind of stopping these common sense reforms that both people on the left and right uh, can agree upon? Uh, well, uh, whole books have been written about this, but I, I'll start. I'll just point out three things. So one is um, uh, not very many members of Congress come to Washington with the hope to serve on the Agriculture Committee, um, but there are some who who really want to serve on the Agriculture Committee, and the committees tend to be stacked with uh, senators and representatives whose job it is is to preserve the status quo. 
So that's certainly one challenge. A second challenge is that um, if you don't serve on the Agriculture Committee and you don't have a background in, in all of these agricultural policies or you haven't written a book about it like Darren has, um, they can seem confusing and arcane and some cases they are intentionally so. Um, but our agriculture policy is actually pretty simple. Um, you know, we spend about $87 billion a year on food and agriculture. About $20 billion of that goes to farmers. About $15 billion of that goes out in subsidies. And then those subsidies flow in two forms, some of which are subject to payment limits and means tests and some of which are not. Um, but the, the story that we tell about our subsidy system uh, makes it sound a lot more confusing than it is. And then, of course, the, the folks who are paid every day to defend the status quo uh, have really significant resources. And so for every person there is like Josh, um, who's here advocating for the taxpayer, there are a thousand people who are being paid to defend the status quo. Um, so those are just three reasons, but there are many more. Question over here. I'm Catherine Boudreau with Politico. Uh, just about in terms of their chances of getting some of these amendments into the Senate bill. I mean, the House process, like you said, was so closed, and none of these amendments made it through the Rules Committee. So um, does, is the Senate a better bet, or, I mean, how successful do you think it will be? I learned long ago not to bet on anything in the Senate. Um, with Mr. Grassley's amendment specifically, this is an amendment that passed both houses overwhelmingly when you look at the way they actually vote um, goes on these kind of things. It's the express will of Congress, and if given an opportunity, it would pass again. And so I think this is the kind of slam dunk common sense amendment that that needs to be included and hopefully will be included in the actual base bill after markup. Uh, and the other amendments, I believe, in, in the reforming of crop insurance and the other parts of the safety net, I think they have a good shot if, again, they're, they're, if they're aired out in, in the open and you actually have a deliberative process on the Senate floor and you let the Senate work its will. That's been a challenge this entire year um, for various reasons. But I think if given the opportunity, we can actually have – make significant progress. And, and I'll, I'll just add that, um, you know, we shouldn't simply allow the uh, two committees to decide the fate of an $870 billion bill. Other members of the House and Senate should have an opportunity to have a say beyond just a yay or nay vote. And so we're hopeful that uh, Senator McConnell will will really embrace uh, a full and fair debate about the future of some of these programs. Again, e even if all the amendments that were uh, contemplated were to prevail, uh, far farmers would still have a farm safety net that would be the envy of all farmers in the world. Um, they would still have, um, if so long as they weren't making millions of dollars in the marketplace, they would still remain eligible for Title I and Title XI subsidies or subsidies for covered commodities and subsidies for crop insurance. Um, the government would still be paying half of their premiums. Um, they would simply have to be uh, farmers, real farmers, who live and actually work on the farm in order to be eligible for subsidies, which seems like a good bargain between the, the farmer and the taxpayer. Question up front? What I don't understand is, I mean, wh why do farmers get all these these subsidies above and beyond what other persons get 
who are not farmers who who suffer hard times, you know, like conventional welfare recipients, you know, you know, food stamp, uh, you know, uh, eight, Section Eight housing, general assistance, TANF, etc. Why they need all these extra subsidies above and beyond what others typically get in welfare? And you know, if you you know, uh, you know, uh, or or for example, or those who uh, who lost their homes in the 2008 crash, they didn't get any subsidies, from what I understood. So why do these farmers think they're entitled to much more subsidies than, than others uh, who are not farmers? Thanks. Thank you. Do you want to answer that there? Put a whole book about that. that. The book was basically asking those types of questions. From an economic standpoint, policy standpoint, um, it is very difficult to justify some of these subsidies. And... So I'm not going to disagree with you. Um, that's kind of the the bigger picture is, and I, I hope people can ask. It, we kind of got we get into the weeds here today a little bit, but really the big question is exactly that. You should take a step back and ask why do we have these programs in the first place? Is are these farmers or ranchers do they experience some type of additional risk that other businesses don't? The answer is. Everybody has unique risk, but other businesses manage. And we don't need to look to like a country like New Zealand that got rid of almost every subsidy to see that farmers or ranchers can survive without subsidies because we can look right here in the U.S. because we already know most farmers and ranchers don't get subsidies or get very little and still flourish. So those are the big questions that I hope people will ask and I hope legislators will ask. I think the, the problem is, is that the folks on the ag committees do care so much about the subsidies, and the programs are so, I think, and I think intentionally confusing that folks off the committees just don't really bother get, to get into it. But I think if they really ask the bigger questions, I think it's actually almost easier in some ways because the answers are pretty relatively straightforward. It's difficult to justify these subsidies. I'll just just say there are a couple of reasons that uh, are not justification for providing unlimited subsidies. One is that uh, that you'll frequently hear is that our farmers feed the world. Uh, in fact, U.S. farmers produce about 4% of global fruits and vegetables and about 8% of wheat. Um, our farmers don't even feed America. We import a lot of fruits and vegetables and uh, other crops from around the world, and that's a good thing because that trade in agricultural products helps prov- produce lots of choices and lowers the overall price of food. Um, the other uh, thing that's also not a reason to provide unlimited subsidies is that farm subsidies somehow have an impact on food prices, one of the most strongly held myths that you will find. And um, I only have to point you to the recent CBO analysis of crop insurance subsidies, um, which has a fantastic chart that shows uh, volatility in food prices over time and then subsidies over time. And you can see there's no correlation at all between the price of food and the price of crops or the or the amount of subsidy that we provide to farmers to grow in the ingredients that we ultimately produce and sell to all of you in, in the supermarket. So um, so I think there uh, you know people might disagree about whether farmers face unique risks that deserve government support, but what's clear is that our that subsidies aren't necessary for our farmers to feed the world and subsidies have no effect whatsoever on the price of food in the grocery store. I would just Josh, let me just ask you this question real quick. One of the, one of the biggest challenges we have really is the myth of the struggling farmer. Um, 
There's a lot of myths out there. I was wondering if you could address any of those for us, either one of you, on that. Well, I think when you use USDA's own numbers, again, we don't we don't build our own numbers. We don't make up numbers. We use USDA numbers, the ones that we're allowed to see. And when you look at it, farm households on average earn much more than the average American household. And if you can get access to numbers to, to break it down by regions and by crops, you can find certain crops that do spectacular uh, compared to other folks. Um, and they're often the ones who are crying the most for subsidies. And so, I mean, that's a big myth. And the other myth is that, again, I think agriculture is a very dynamic industry. And that's something that we tend to forget is that we, Scott said, it's, you get you can get crop insurance on about 140 different crops. And there are still crops that were, people are growing in this country successfully that aren't subsidized. We are growing hundreds of crops and types and different types of management structures and different, whether you're selling direct to, to consumers, you can sell vertically integrated. It's all this is a very complex web and different people have come up with different ways of managing risk and, and making a profit. Uh, and the government just cannot keep up with that kind of dynamism. And I think that's, except that's why it gets down to a few, a handful of crops get all the money because some folks have created entities in order to do that. Yeah, and, and I'll just say that some, some farmers need help, as, as uh, Senator Grassley said, because of market failure or natural disasters. And the, we think there ought to be a safety net that helps farmers when they're in times of real need. Um, unfortunately, most of the subsidies flow to the largest and most successful operators. Um, the, the largest, the large and very large farms, if you want to use USDA's terminology, um, that collect most of the subsidies have average farm household income of more than $300,000 and more than $700,000 a year, respectively. Um, so, I think uh, the challenge isn't – the question isn't whether or not we need a, f a farm safety net. Um, I think most Americans would agree that we need to provide farmers the tools to weather the ups and downs of agriculture and, and help farmers when they're really in, need, in times of need. Um, that's not the system we have today. Many of the reforms that will be hopefully debated on the floor of the Senate will move us in the right direction in the sense that we won't be providing subsidies to farmers who already make millions of dollars in the marketplace – and we won't be providing subsidies to city slickers um, who might just happen to have a financial interest in the farm. And we certainly won't be once again returning, uh, providing subsidies to billionaires like Paul Allen and Charles Schwab. Thank you, and join me in thanking the, the panel.
So that's the one that we weren't sure that was working. Yeah. Okay. 